0: Welcome to ASME TechCast, where we bring you the innovators, the innovations, and the issues to push the envelope of engineering. My name is John Kozwatz, Senior Editor of Mechanical Engineering Magazine and ASME.org. And today, we are talking with David Wren, who is Head of Engineering for SpinLatch, a new space technology company working toward putting satellites and small payloads into orbit without using rockets. So, David, welcome. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, John. Happy to be here.
0: So let me first say that this podcast is sponsored by IGUS, Motion Plastic Components for Predictably Better Performance. Design longer-lasting machines with self-lubricating bearings, maintenance-free cable carriers, and flexible cables that are guaranteed to last up to 36 months. Every product is rigorously tested and offers a predictable service life. So it, uh, it seems that you and your colleagues uh, out there have uh, found an interesting niche in the industry, uh, a novel method of delivering satellites uh, into Earth orbit. Um, everyone's familiar with rockets blasting off, of course, which has been the standard for space launches and Sputnik. so uh, let's start by, uh, if you could uh, describe the Spin Launch system for us and uh,
1: um, and how it works. So Spin Launch is developing a new way to get to space. We're building a ground-based mass accelerator that uses electricity and a rotating arm to launch satellites into space at dramatically lower costs, at high cadence, and in a sustainable way.
0: Okay. So let's break down the system. It starts, uh, first, you're, you're building, or have built, actually, uh, a, centrif- a a centrifuge within a vacuum.
1: So, yeah, I can talk through the kind of the high level, um, uh, you know, the system level view of, of what a spin launch accelerator is. So So fundamentally, it's a rotating, high-strength carbon fiber arm inside of a large diameter vacuum chamber, which has... Um, what the industry considers a you know a medium or rough grade vacuum. There's a, uh, a you know a large shaft attached to the center of that uh, rotating tether arm, which is driven by you know electric drive system. And the system accelerates up over you know a relatively long period of time, about an hour, uh, and then at a very specific moment, we release the launch vehicle from the end of the tether. It travels out of an exit tunnel and then airlocks seal behind the launch vehicle to maintain the vacuum inside of the vacuum chamber. That launch vehicle extends through the upper atmosphere, about 70 kilometers, and aeroshell separates, and then a small, simple, low-cost, propulsive stage brings the satellites the rest of the way to orbit.
0: Okay, okay. So you came on board um, after this conceptual, after the conceptual design was completed, right? yeah so. so I
1: joined yeah I joined the company in 2015 it was still very early stage so the 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 basic concept uh, had been thought through Jonathan had done you know the CEO had had completed a lot of research into looking at the heritage of similar projects if there was you know proof points that we could look towards to feel that there was going to be feasibility for this idea but when I joined uh, you know the the most that had been built was a small kind of tabletop accelerator so a small motor with a string spinning at supersonic speeds and then a very small, um, about one meter in diameter vacuum chamber. So there was just those very basic proof points and then research to point towards heritage that gave us confidence to move forward. So, but other than that, nothing else had been built. And so when I joined, it was really about saying, we're gonna build our first big prototype. We're gonna build the 12 meter diameter accelerator. We're gonna try and achieve hypersonic speeds and then demonstrate that we have the launch precision required to send uh, small scale flight test vehicles down the exit tunnel.
0: Why did, why did you sign on? What, uh, um, uh, what, what brought you to this? What, was your, what were your thoughts about it back, uh, well, back in 2015? Yeah, it's,
1: it's a good question. Well, I, I was, uh, I found the idea fascinating. It's one of those ideas that, um, when you first hear about it, you say, well, th- this is impossible. This is, this is too ambitious. There's, there's things that aren't going to work. Um, and what was really compelling for me in talking to Jonathan is that he had proof points you know, we were able to look back into history and say, well, you know, for example, how are you going to fly at, at hypersonic speeds at sea level? And we could point to, to in the 1960s, Project HARP flew at Mach 6 at sea level and actually did that from vacuum into the atmosphere. Um, and so there are a lot of unknown... That was, that, was a defense,
0: that was a defense project, if I'm not mistaken, right?
1: So, well, uh, sort of. Uh, it, it was backed by the U.S. Army and then uh, a Canadian university, University of McGill, actually, And Gerald Bull led that project. And the goal actually uh, was for, uh, you know, the US Army was backing it. They were providing hardware um, to support the effort, Um, but it was actually for upper atmospheric uh, research and data collection to support uh, the, the development of traditional rocket technology. So they were looking at it as a low cost way to probe the upper atmosphere. But then the project lead, Gerald Bull, was actually always very interested in satellite launch using guns. Okay, but 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 anyways, there were those proof points, right? And so, so I went through that personal process of going through skepticism and then going through the different technical challenges that we needed to navigate, and then being able to see that there were proof points that we could draw upon and say collectively we see a path to feasibility here. And so that was exciting for me. Um, I've always had a passion for for rockets. Uh, You know, when I was at uh, 13, I started cooking rocket fuel from scratch. You know, I went to Home Depot and got the necessary ingredients, and my parents were very uh, supportive of my interest there. So I was always really interested in rockets and aerospace, inspired by SpaceX, and this seemed like a really new, interesting idea. And I really liked the idea also of joining a company right at the beginning and getting to see it from end to end. Okay. Well,
0: talk to us about the design then. Um, uh, the challenges in bringing something from a tabletop uh, a tabletop model up to the, well, up to the point where you are now?
1: Yeah, so it started with the the 12 meter accelerator, as I mentioned previously, that was really the the first major prototype that we decided to build. It, it was, you know, a fully integrated system, a large diameter vacuum chamber at 12 meters. Um, you know, if you look across the industry, there really aren't that many large diameter vacuum chambers. So even just that was a big deal um, to not be you know, a government-funded entity or the government building a vacuum chamber that large is a big deal, um, and and so we we, we built that system. Um, it was it was really a process of uh, designing and building at the same time. We knew uh, the basic specs that we wanted to hit in terms of you know velocities we wanted to rotate at, um, and 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 the precision that we needed to to release the vehicle at. Um, but so so. We had the basic requirements and then it was a process of actually designing and building at the same time. So uh, we were going through, uh, for example, if I I can say like when we were building the vacuum chamber, for instance, we were still doing the finite element analysis when we started purchasing uh, major portions of the steel to build the system, right? So we actually had figured out, well, we want the domes to look like this. We want the walls to look like this. But as we go through the analysis, we're still having a, you know, plastic collapse at a safety factor lower than what you want. And so we need to move quickly. So we said, let's move forward. Let's order the steel and we're going to be able to figure it out. We'll be able to add more steel in the necessary areas to, to make it work. And I only bring that up because that was the general theme is that we were building and designing as the steel was coming together, the drive system was being designed, um, you know, down selecting on, on bearing systems, whether it was a fluid film or mechanical bearing, for example. And so, you know, incrementally, we, we went through that process, constantly iterating, designing buildings, sometimes having um, small-scale prototypes along the way. Um, and then that culminated in actually bringing the system online. And we pulled vacuum on it uh, in, in uh, I think it was 2016 now, um, for the first time, which is a really exciting moment for us. And then quickly thereafter, we, we integrated the drive system, attached uh, a, a small tapered carbon fiber tether, and then exceeded... Uh, the the previous speed records that had been set in the 1980s. And so we had that, you know, aha moment of, hey, there, there really seems to be feasibility here. Let's keep moving forward.
0: Okay. All right. Um, there were construction challenges uh, also while you were doing this, weren't there? You know, at, at least
1: yeah. at the very beginning, as I understand it, um, funding was a little low. So. Yeah, we, we had we had limited funding. We had an extremely small team. Um, you know, it was it was true of everybody on the team. But I can you know you know give you my own personal experience. You know, I was you know at you know one hour of the day I would be doing design and analysis, and then another hour of the day I would be you know operating the forklift, lifting steel. Uh, you know, uh, you know, learning how to use an acetylene torch to to cut components out um, so that the welders could put them, put it together. So it, it really was an all hands on deck process. And um, I, I think from the engineering side of it, at least the benefit there is that you, you learn in a very visceral way, what it means to design for manufacturing, to design for construction. You know, if, if you say on, in SolidWorks, well, this looks easy, let's just do it like this. And then you find out in the real world, it often is, it's much harder. And so you build, you know, a tight Feedback loop between the way you design and the way you think about constructing the system. But yeah, construction was 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 very difficult. We had a a team with with limited experience, very limited capital, um, and we had a a tight timeline. So it it was, you know, a lot of learning on the fly, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of motivation required to navigate the challenges that came up and and every day something new would would come up and and we'd find solutions around it.
0: Okay. Okay
1: well, talk a little bit about the um,
0: um, about the uh, the carbon fiber used in the tether, and yeah. uh, um, was it was it difficult in sourcing the material? Was it already out there?
1: Um, so, what, so what did it take? Yeah. To, you know, what was the testing period like? Yeah, so in in terms of material selection, it's actually an interesting question. So when I joined the company, um, we were still in that process of of down selecting between uh, carbon fiber and other candidate materials. So, you know, actually, originally, the the very first prototype that Jonathan had built um, before, um, you know, officially starting the company was using a a high specific strength, so a high strength to weight ratio uh, uh, rope. Um, And so you can actually do a lot with with rope technology today. There's materials out there like uh, HMP, which is a high molecular polyethylene, um, and it has an incredible specific strength. So it it rivals that of carbon fiber. And so originally we thought, well, maybe maybe this is the way we're going to go. Our tether will be made out of uh, high strength ropes. Um, What we ended up uh, finding there is that um, one, it's nice to have a rigid system. So there are ways you could encase a rope and and make it rigid. Um, But importantly, the tether needs to be tapered. Um, and, and the reason for that is it's almost like the Eiffel Tower, if you can imagine, the weight of each section um, needs to carry the, the the weight of the section above it. So if you go to the, from the top of the Eiffel Tower to the base of it, each section carries the weight of the section above it. And so it has this, this taper, if you want, uh, uniform stress throughout the structure. And so the same is true of, of the tether. As it's rotating, you have, you know, you start with the the weight of the launch vehicle, and then you back calculate the the cross-sectional area required as you move back to the hub. And so each section of tether, as you move back to that that central shaft has to get thicker and thicker and thicker to support um, the additional weight of the sections um, more outward. So so we down-selected on carbon fiber. Um, The the beauty of carbon fiber today is that um, there's there's a a relatively uh, wide range of suppliers there's a very large supply that's available. So, so, you know, uh, many thousands of tons of carbon fiber are are produced each year. Um, that wasn't necessarily true, maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So the maturity of the industry was, was definitely a benefit for us. Um, and so we were able to, to, to trade between different material selections. There's a lot of ways you can do carbon fiber. It's not, uh, for example, like a, like a, you know, metallic material steel aluminum you have you know specific alloys, specific grades and you buy those and you know what they're going to do carbon fiber is very process oriented um, so how you put it together really matters you know I like to say it's it's um it's like high performance arts and crafts you know you, you really you really need you to be very very diligent about how you put carbon fiber together and so you can buy it um, we started uh, with carbon fiber in pultruded form factors so carbon fiber poltrusion um, the supplier essentially takes these um, these spools of carbon fiber, and you pull that through um, through the epoxy, through the glue that holds it all together. And then it's pulled through a heated dye, which cures the epoxy, but then also pulls the carbon fiber um, into a highly compact, highly unidirectional form factor, which is really great for maximizing um, that critical parameter of specific strength. Um, so we started with, with protrusions, um, but then we moved out on, on a variety of other carbon fiber processes as well. Um, so you have, you can buy carbon fiber in, in the fabric form, and then you bring in the epoxy separately, and then you infuse that. Um, there are, you can get, um, you know, pre-preg carbon fiber where the, where the, um, epoxies are pre-impregnated. So you keep it in a freezer, you take it out, you assemble it, then you put it in an oven. Um, There's a variety of ways in which you can cure it. Some some epoxies will will, uh, essentially exotherm and cure themselves. Sometimes you need to use an oven. Sometimes you wanna use an autoclave, which is an oven at pressure. So there's really a a wide variety of, 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 of ways of using carbon fiber. And in terms of key enabling technologies, it is the key enabling technology for spin launch. And the maturity of the carbon fiber industry is what makes spin launch possible today. Whereas, you know, a few decades ago, it would have been very, very difficult to accomplish spin launch.
0: Okay. What What is the length of the tether? And um, and and just describe the um, just describe the process after you, uh, um, after you start spinning it. You said it takes an hour, so you're starting from uh, you're starting from a standstill. Gradually yeah. working up to what point for release?
1: Yeah, so, so the diameter of the tether is, um, it's about, so the chamber is 100 meter diameter. And so you have, you know, a couple of meters of spacing off the wall um, between the, the wall and the launch vehicle. So the tether is, is a, a, a little bit smaller than 100 meters in diameter. So the radius is, you know, approximately 45 meters in, in length. So, and just to put that in context, you know, again, talking about the, the composites industry in terms of scale, uh, the, the wind turbine industry actually is, is, you know, has demonstrated basically the largest scale composite structures that are out there. So there are wind turbines now that are, um, you know, approaching 200 meters in diameter and there may actually be some out there that are already um, greater than 200 meters in diameter. I'm not sure. Um, but in terms of the spin-up process, yes, it starts at a standstill um, and then the, the system slowly spins up. So you have, you know, a specific torque that the motor's uh, outputting and then the system gradually spins up and then when we get to uh, the target launch velocity, um, the system uh, holds at that velocity, we command the release, and then there's an automated system that monitors where the tether is, and then commands, on, I just got some background noise, and then, and then commands the, the specific point at which the release should happen. Um, and then in terms of velocity, um, spin launch really makes sense at approximately Mach 6. If you want to go well above six times the speed of sound, you start getting into material limitations with carbon fiber. Um, and then if you go below Mach 4, there's actually um, you can actually still have a really significant uh, impact on the rocket equation in minimizing propulsive uh, stage requirements. Um, so I would say bare minimum for a kinetic launch system to, to be beneficial. Uh, Mach four is kind of that low end of the sweet spot, and then for us, Mach six is is the target that we have that we think is best.
0: Okay. Uh, and so you've got a predetermined release point within there. Um, yes. And it. Um, so how how does the connection uh, between the tether and the uh, and the rocket uh, uh, happen?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Uh, th- that is one of kind of the areas that is, uh, you know, kind of magical for SpinLock. So we do have certain areas that are either, you know, controlled technology or proprietary. Um, what I can, I can kind of talk about some of the parameters that we consider uh, at that interface. Um, so, we, so we care about reusability, right? You want to be able to reuse whatever the attachment is again and again and again. Um, we care about the attachment being efficient. So if that interface is very mass inefficient. Um, It changes the mass of the tether and then ultimately can change the the unit economics and the the capital costs required to build the orbital system. Um, And then we care about uh, 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 reliability and consistency between launches. So you want a relatively high tolerance interface between the launch vehicle and the tether. And then of course it needs to be able to rapidly detach from from the launch vehicle. um, And again, do that in a a precise and controllable way. Um, What I can say in terms of the the release timing, um, one of the the, um, proof points in history that we like to look back at is that um, in early uh, aircraft that were used for for war applications, the machine gun on the aircraft was located behind the propeller, right? So you can imagine early aircraft, you know, very simple technology and you have a machine gun sitting behind the propeller shooting through the propeller. And it's like, well, how were they able to do that? Um, you know, so many decades ago without modern technology. Um, and it turns out there are, in, in that instance, there are mechanical ways of essentially allowing, um, you know, putting a safety on the system unless that, that propeller is in a very specific location relative um, to the, the firing sequence on the, the gun. And so for us, there's a there's a similar control there where the tether itself, the control system Um, And the mechanics of of how that release happens are very uh, location oriented. And so we can be confident that it's only going to release um, at the very specific location in space rather than saying, oh, well, we need this level of millisecond accuracy. Um, So that's a key part of it. And, and the other thing is that we don't, we don't wanna use explosives. So, so generally throughout the system, we've, we've avoided the, the use of explosives. So for our airlocks as well, which would be another interesting thing to talk about, that's another high energy system that moves very fast um, and needs to be reusable and, and low cost. And so we've, we've avoided the use of explosives there as well. So as much as possible, we'd like to use the energy stored in the system um, to do these uh, uh, high velocity, low time increment events like release or like the airlocks. What are your power needs? so the the power needs can vary. um it's it's very much a a, a capital cost question. So as long as you have um, you know the the minimal torque required to overcome uh, bearing friction um, and and turnover loads given the incline of the system, um, you, you know you, you can operate the system with you know uh, in terms of power requirement, kind of low tens of megawatts so so you know, uh, 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 you know, for context, a Tesla is a little bit under a megawatt. One of the high-performance Tesla cars is a little under a megawatt. So, if you had, um, you know, a few dozen Teslas, essentially that would that would meet the power requirement of the system. So, it's actually a, a relatively small power requirement. And in terms of total energy, um, we do do regenerative braking, which which helps uh, minimize the total energy requirement. Um, but just a benchmark it, we're talking about a few thousand dollars worth of electricity. So the total power requirement is actually quite small. And that's one of the key benefits of spin launch compared to other kinetic launch systems is that because we're slowly imparting the energy, the instantaneous power demand is really small. So if you look at, say, an electromagnetic accelerator like a railgun, um, you need a lot of power in a very, very small period of time. And so the energy is the same, right? You're still accelerating a vehicle to a certain uh, kinetic energy, um, but because that energy needs to be um, deployed in in you know less than a second, the power requirement for a railgun ends up being very large. And so for us, the power requirement is very typical and in what's industry standard. You can buy motors of this size, you can string them together. You don't need to go outside of the typical catalog of of components, which is really uh, you know across all the subsystems, we try and keep um, them within the domain of what the industry already has.
0: Okay. Um, what's the maximum payload that you can work with?
1: Yeah. So our, our first generation system, we're targeting a 200 kilogram capability. So that that represents, you know, essentially the, the vast majority of small satellites that are being deployed right now in orbit. Long term, I can see, um, you know, an upgraded version of the first generation system, as well as later generation systems being increased in size. So. The the main thing that happens there is that uh, tether mass increases, and so it can change the the initial capital cost of of the system. But there isn't a fundamental limit on how 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 large you can size the payload. So we we felt two hundred kilograms was ideal from where the market was at, and so that's why we're targeting that for the system. Right. Okay. Um. And then um. Uh. How?
0: What? What's the percentage of um, of of the payload? Uh,
1: um versus the rocket itself, yeah, so for spin launch, it's a little bit unique. We have um, it, we don't just have a rocket. we have an aeroshell as well. and so the 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 aeroshell is is actually the majority of the mass that that we're launching. so that's that's you know uh, over over five tons of mass that that we're launching uh, is is in the aeroshell. so the the you can say, you know two hundred kilograms versus the total mass of the the integrated vehicle is about, 10 tons. So, but in terms of actual, uh, in terms of actual, uh, rocket mass, the dry mass of the rocket versus the, the payload, the, the empty rocket is only a few hundred kilograms. So it's, it's, it's not, uh, significantly more than the mass of, of the payload. So that, you know, one of the beauties of providing, uh, the, you know, a boost from the ground is that, um, that payload mass fraction can be increased pretty substantially. So we're talking about, you know, a two or three X increase, um, even though we're providing uh, a small proportion of the total velocity required to get to orbit, because it's an exponential requ- equation. As you, um, you know, slightly decrease the amount of velocity re- required to get to orbit, you have a significant increase in, in payload mass fraction. And then you can also do really interesting things like remove turbo pumps from the system. So we're using a, a, a liquid Uh, Rockets, liquid propulsion, very similar to what you know SpaceX or or others use for most launches. Um, But most of those vehicles, in addition to being highly mass optimized, in addition to being high performance, um, they typically use turbopumps. And turbopumps are, have uh, you know essentially they operate at 30,000 plus RPM. Often they're moving um, cryogenic liquids uh, at high velocities at extremely high pressures. Often. Um, you know, 200 times atmosphere. And so SpinLaunch can eliminate all of that. We can we can use more of um, what I would consider a university-grade rocket where it's a pressure-fed design. So you have uh, pressuring tanks um, that pressurize the, the fuel tanks, and then you just have a valve that opens. That fuel blows down and then combusts in the engine. So not only is our rocket substantially smaller, um, but it's, I would say, an order of magnitude lower complexity and lower performance than a traditional rocket, you know, our rocket operates at, um, in terms of pressures, what you would see in like shop air versus, you know, hundreds of atmosphere in a traditional rocket. Are they recoverable? So for, for our first generation system, just the aeroshell is recoverable in terms of our, Per launch um, uh, cost, most of the cost is actually in the aeroshell, and so that's that's what we're recovering. Long term, I, I I do see viability in incorporating reusability into um, that small propulsive stage as well. It's not um, uh, right right now where the market's at. We don't see the need to recover that um, from an economic standpoint, but long term, we 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 do think that's a you know an exciting prospect for driving down launch costs um, additionally. And, and again, when you look at what kinetic launch does to um, the design space that is making rockets, um, because you're minimizing mass optimization requirements, it's easier to incorporate reusability. So on a, a traditional launch vehicle, incorporating reusability is extremely difficult. So in recent years we've seen um the booster of a rocket get recovered, um, but a booster Even though it's most of what makes up a rocket, um, it actually uh, is is the slowest part of the rocket. The upper stage is actually what provides the vast majority of the velocity um, to get into orbit. Um, And recovering that upper stage from orbit is very difficult with traditional rockets. So with a kinetically launched system, you have more wiggle room in terms of your mass budget. And so it's easier to incorporate um, uh, systems like thermal protection systems uh, for the reentry and the recovery.
0: Another advantage of this, I guess, is that you can, um, um, you can have multiple launches during the course of a day. Yes, so, so, so the, yeah, how yeah. long does it, how long does it take the system to, uh, uh, to work out to be used again?
1: Yeah. So our our goal is to operate the system uh, five times or more each day. Um, on the 12 meter system, we have achieved that rate. Um, on the suborbital system, uh, we've we've uh, you know demonstrated that we can at least do it a couple of times uh, per day. We we've seen that turnaround time. Um, and then and then yeah, on the orbital system, there'll be additional optimization when it comes to launch vehicle integration and and standards there, so that we can achieve five or more launches. Per day. All right. But it's it's and, and the way we can do that really is because you're taking the majority of what makes up a rocket system and you're converting it into industrial hardware on the ground, right? Even though the the, the accelerator that we're building um, uh, you know, is capable of accelerating masses to extremely high velocities. It's doing it with a uh, relatively industrial uh subsystem. So the motors, the vacuum chamber, the drive systems, none of this is, is particularly extremely high performance. Um so you can operate it the same way you operate any other industrial um kind of continuous process system where you can constantly be operating it for, for you know a decade or more.
0: Okay. Um
1: apparently there were quite
0: a few doubters um uh, yeah. during the developmental stages of this. Um at what point did you get a good idea of success?
1: Yeah, well, I guess I can start by saying I, you know I think skepticism is warranted for for new technologies. It was definitely my personal process. Like I went through skepticism when I first heard about SpinLaunch and then dug into uh, you know the reality of what it would take to implement a system like this. So I would say you know there's kind of two categories of of people that doubt. There's you know people that are just you know categ- they they just categorically say, this is impossible, this is crazy, this isn't going to work." And then there are other people that say, well, maybe it's possible, but this is going to be too hard to to do. And so you have to, you have to be able to answer, you know, both of those doubters, you know, from, from the early days, we felt really good that there was feasibility, um, because we knew the fundamentals were sound and we knew that there were proof points in history that we could look to, um, on kind of the key challenges that experts typically would say you wouldn't be able to navigate. We were able to say, well, what do you think about this example in history? What do you think about Project HARP? What do you think about, um, you know NASA's uh, high-g uh, electronic ruggedization program that happened in the 1960s, and when you bring those pieces of heritage up, people say, "Okay, maybe this actually is feasible." Um, and then the next piece was, "Well, how hard is this going to be?" And that really, again, looking back on the 12-meter system, that was our first foray into saying, "How how difficult of a technology is this going to be to implement?" Um, and so I would say, when when you know, we built a vacuum chamber, we turned it on. And it held vacuum and it didn't crumple and it worked and the math held up. That was one of those moments where we say, ah, uh, like we, we can do something that a lot of people told us wasn't going to be possible, or at least wasn't going to be possible with, with the uh, capital or resources that we had. So that was one of those moments where we said, we, we can do something that others are saying is impossible. And then when we rotated uh, for the first time in that system at velocities that previously uh, hadn't been achieved since the 1980s by a national laboratory, we said, aha, we can do something that, that people doubted was possible. And so mm-hmm. it's really been a process of incremental risk reduction. And so I don't know that there is, um, one fundamental moment where I, I, uh, converted over and said, this is really possible, but we really do try and have, um, a culture of, of skepticism, a culture of paranoia around different technological risks we face. Um, that's how we've been able to navigate the different challenges by, by Really, uh, listen, listening open, openly to criticism uh, or, or skeptics, and saying, "Okay, well, is there is there any any truth in in, 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 uh, in the counterpoints that we hear?" And then we dig in deep and, and find solutions.
0: What was the were uh, were one or two of the biggest challenges that uh, that you faced in uh, in bringing this uh, to fruition?
1: Well, I, going back to your first question, that, that previous question, I do, it, it is important to be able to um, communicate the technology uh, effectively because you need to be able to hire a talented engineers. So that that was a real-world challenge of saying we need to build a great team and we need to be able to convince that team. And so there was a lot of work um, in, in, in that process of being able to show show the you know supporting evidence that that we can navigate um, this technology effectively. Um, in terms of specific engineering challenges. Um, I, I, The the one that stumped us for a really long time was was the rotor dynamics of the system. Um, And so it's not as simple to say, well, you have carbon fiber, it holds on to this launch vehicle, it rotates, and then you just design for for that that essentially static load case. Uh, The reality is that as you spin the system up, it's like a helicopter blade or any other rotating system. That rotor arm, in our case, the tether, it has a natural frequency, and so as you um, rotate through the natural frequencies of that tether, it wants to vibrate, it wants to shake, and that drives um, uh, it drives the design of the tether because there are stresses that develop um, based on those vibrations. It uh, drives damping requirements so that you can minimize those vibrations as you go through them, um, and it design it, it it drives the shaft and the bearing and the foundation requirements. So it ends up being this a uh, highly integrated um, dynamics problem. Um, and you have to consider all the way from what are your soil conditions to what is the tether. You have to be able to, in an integrated way, look at that entire landscape and then iterate through solutions of tether design such that you end up with a tether that isn't gonna shake itself apart. Um, and so this is one of those areas where um, nobody was really saying it in terms of those doubters. We really never heard nuanced um, counterpoints like this. Um, and it was one of those areas that as we transition from the 12 meter system to our 33 meter suborbital system, we knew we needed to navigate. Um, it may not be intuitive, but our 12 meter system is horizontal. The tether is rotating in a flat plane pl- parallel to the ground. And because of that, um, it doesn't have, it does, it's not subject to, to these vibrations the same way an inclined system is incline system. You can imagine as that tether rotates, It wants to sag a little bit under gravity uh, during each rotation. That drives energy into the system. And when you have energy driving into the system, natural frequencies will get excited. Um, And so that was one of those, when we we look from the transition from the 12 meter to the 33 meter, and something that we knew we needed to solve before going to the orbital system. Rotor dynamics was something that that stumped us for a while, um, and it required a lot of you know, brilliant uh, simulation analysis engineers and prototyping to to validate the models, um, but ultimately we got it to a point where Not only can we analyze that, but we can analyze that quickly. And that's really important because you need to be able to, to to effectively engineer You don't want a simulation tool that takes four days to solve. You want to be able to do things almost in real time and do it parametrically so that you can sweep through a variety of solutions. And then down-select the one that uh, hits your acceptance criteria. So that was that was a big a big challenge for us. Um, There's a lot of non-intuitive things when it comes to to rotating structures and how they vibrate. Um, and so it it, it took uh, I would say more time than anticipated to navigate that. And then going back to the theme of when we built the 12 meter, and it was a lot of you know design and build at the same time. The 33 meter still had some of those technological unknowns that we were navigating. And so while we were building the chamber, we were still um, digging deep on rotor dynamics and making sure we really understood it um, for the foundation and bearing design of of that system. Okay. Well, the airlocks airlocks are the other interesting one. I mean, you have to seal the system off during launch. So that was another, you know, one that, you know, it, it wasn't until we brought the suborbital system online that, we had uh, demonstrated the airlock technology, which is, you know, one of the few subsystems that you can't just buy off the shelf for Spin Launch.
0: So talk about that a little bit. We haven't. Uh, We've mentioned it, but
1: yeah, well, it, it is another area that that is uh, generally proprietary. Um, you can go online and 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 on YouTube, Real Engineering did a great uh, mini documentary on Spin Launch. They came in and did a deep dive, and you can watch a, a test that we do. And essentially we do a zero-knowledge proof. We show you it working, but we don't go behind the scenes to, to show the mechanics of how it works. Um, but essentially, it, you know, put it in simple terms, it's a door that moves extremely fast. Um, you have this vehicle flying out, the air is flowing back into the chamber at, at supersonic speeds. We do some stuff to, to slow down that air a little bit, but it's trying to get back into the chamber as quickly as it can. Um, and so we built uh, the, these high-speed doors that essentially can swing shut, um, about three times faster than the blank and I. Um, and again, not using explosives, doing it in a way that that's highly reusable. Um, so and this was all done uh, in-house. You did it all in-house. This this was done in-house. This was uh, yeah, I think, yeah, it was it was all done in house. And I think it was, you know, one of those one of our engineers had that moment of, you know, the light bulb went off and said, Hey, what if we do it like this? And everyone said, Oh yeah, like that that might just work. Um and so we built some prototypes and and demonstrated that. Um, The deployment velocities um, that we wanted were there. Um, Originally, what we were looking for in the industry, because we always look for heritage, what we were looking for were um, essentially high-speed closing doors for emergency applications. Like if you have an HVAC system that's carrying a dust that could be explosive, often they'll have detection systems that detect the explosion and then they'll have a fire uh, interlocked door that can close in a few hundred milliseconds to prevent that explosion from propagating through the entire HVAC system. And so they were about an order of magnitude slower than we wanted, um, but that was the initial inspiration. And we essentially found a way to, um, it don't. It, what we're doing doesn't quite look like what, what, what those look like, but we found a way to be inspired by it and, and to really juice the system up and deploy it in you know, tens of milliseconds. And, and those are really critical. And we have redundant doors so that if one were to fail, there's one on a separate control system that will also deploy. It's kind of like the brakes in your car. You have to be confident those will work because the air rush is back in. That's a bad day for the, for the tether.
0: All right. Well, I'm sorry to say we're going to have to uh, leave things here now. Um, yes. Thanks for talking with us today and much luck going forward.
1: Really appreciate it,
0: John. It's been good talking to you. And thank you to our sponsor, IGUS, for supporting today's podcast. IGUS has been manufacturing engineered plastics for more than 50 years. Visit IGUS.com to learn more about high-strength polymer parts with predictable service life. And of course, thanks to everyone out there for listening. If you're interested in other ASME TechCasts on a variety of engineering issues, please go to your favorite podcast platform. Again, my name is John Koswatz. Thanks again.